Hey, it's Rachel, and we are starting out this year with a focus on climate change and migration, specifically how extreme weather is upending life in some of the poorest countries in the world. We're going to bring you stories about this through the month of January. It can be tough stuff, right? We're talking about existential threats to our planet and very real life or death decisions that people have to make in order to survive. But we're also going to bring you stories about resilience, courage, and hope. Today on Up First Sunday, we're going to focus on what is happening in Somalia. Hundreds of thousands of Somalis are on the move or living in camps as the Horn of Africa is being scorched by its worst drought on record. Livestock are dying, cereal harvests are failing. There is a massive hunger crisis gripping the country right now. Millions of people are facing crisis-level food insecurity or worse. That's the voice of Petrock Wilton. He's a spokesperson for the UN World Food Program in Somalia. The UN and other aid agencies are warning that in a matter of months, parts of Somalia could be in a major famine. Somalis who make their living as subsistence farmers are fleeing to try to save their families from starvation. But some don't survive that journey. My colleague Jason Bobian was in Somalia in mid-December. When we come back, Jason tells me the stories he heard from people across the country. Jason, thanks so much for coming to talk with us about your reporting. No, it's my pleasure to be here. All right. So let's just start off with the drought that you have been covering, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a really bad drought in the Horn of Africa right now. Some agencies are saying it's the worst in 40 years. NASA, which monitors rainfall in these areas by satellite, says it's the worst since they've been keeping records. And it's not just affecting Somalia. It's also hitting Ethiopia, parts of Kenya. Somalia typically has two rainy seasons per year, and the last five of them have failed completely or the rains have been well below normal. So scientists you know, say that this is one of the impacts of climate change. More droughts and more intense droughts, more frequent droughts, and that's absolutely what we're seeing right now in Somalia. Um, it, Somalia is it's a dry place. It's very arid. It's used to having droughts. But the problem now is that this drought is lasting longer, and it comes on the heels of bad droughts that hit in 2011, in 2015, then again in 2017, and, and, and now this one. So that pattern that climate scientists have been warning about, more frequent droughts, it's very much what we're seeing right now in Somalia. So what did you see in terms of, of the impact of all that? You know, Rachel, uh, people are just barely hanging on. My translator, Hussein, and I were talking to this one woman, Khadija Noor Ali, and in her words, she had just fled to Mogadishu. She said everything would be different for her if there was water back in her village. Lack of raining, and the river is dried, and then the, the drought has become so extensive, and then we, move, we run away from there. Back in her village, she was saying that she worked as a laborer. She would tend the crops for another farmer. But with no significant rain over the last two years, there was no work, no food. And so a couple of months ago, Khadijo moved along with six kids to this dusty makeshift camp on the northern edge of Mogadishu. You said camp, Jason. What does that mean? I sort of visualize those rows of white UN tents that you sometimes see in refugee camps. Is that what it looks like? Um, no. Uh, these camps are incredibly chaotic. They're not uniform. There are no rows of white 
canvas, tents. Everyone is just making improvised shelters out of whatever they can find. Kadijo, who I just mentioned, she's living in this makeshift hut, made it out of sticks. She covered it with some tarps, bits of cloth. And there are hundreds of these camps now that have sprung up around the outskirts of Mogadishu and other cities over the last year. And in this one, which is a fairly typical camp, they were telling me that there's roughly 300 families in just this one camp. So you, you do the math, it's hundreds of people in this camp, and then there are hundreds of these camps. Khadija was there with her five own kids and one 11-year-old girl. She refers to the 11-year-old as the orphan. And this child was sitting on the dusty ground next to Khadijo. And the girl's hair had turned this wispy reddish color, which is a classic sign of malnutrition. Can I see this child's arm? Her limbs are very limp, um, and she seems very thin. Yeah. Uh, to, has she taken this child to, to check whether this child is malnourished? I didn't try to go to the health center for this because I don't know nothing about it. Wow. Yeah, she's in this new city. Uh, she doesn't even know where the health center is or how to navigate that medical system. And on top of all that, she'd been told that there was going to be food at these camps. That was part of the reason she came. And she says she hasn't seen any food being handed out at all. So now she says she's trying to make some money. She does day labor, uh, washing clothes for people in, in the center of the city. <laughs> We are living in a very hard condition. I go to the city to do a laundry service, do at laundry home, service. Laundry service at homes. If I get it, it's okay. I'll buy some food and come back to my family and cook them. If I get nothing, I go back. Then all the children, I tell them to go to, to, go to bed to sleep with hunger. It's hard to hear that, right? I mean, you're a parent, I'm a parent. Imagine telling your children that there is no food, and you just have to go to bed without. Um, is this woman's situation exceptional, or did you hear this from other people in the camps? You know, unfortunately, we heard this from a lot of other people in the camps. Almost every person that we talked to in the camps said that there's no food, and there has been no regular food distributions, and they're just scraping to get by sort of day to day. They're saying that the government isn't handing out food, international aid agencies aren't handing out food. There are some special centers at hospitals and clinics where the most severely malnourished kids can get emergency rations. But for the hundreds of thousands of ordinary Somalis who've ended up in these camps, most are either begging or collecting firewood to sell or doing day labor, like Khadijo mentioned, just to get food for their families. Um, Somalia is in the midst of this mass migration driven by this drought. The UN estimates that nearly 2 million people, which is more than 10% of the population, have been forced to leave their homes, leave their farms, move somewhere else because the drought is making it impossible to live there. And in that migration, mothers, doctors, aid workers, all of them told us that they were seeing that there are kids who are dying right now along the way. Dying from starvation. Is yeah. that right? Actually, children dying because they don't have enough food to eat right now in Somalia. Yeah, that's right. Uh, some people are. It's primarily children. The number of deaths are still relatively low compared to some other food crises. But this country is in a situation that 
aid agencies fear might get to a terrible famine. And already, you know, as I mentioned, parents in camps are telling us stories about on the journey, one child didn't make it, or before they left, one of their children had died, and that's why they came to the camps. We also went down to the city of Baidoa, which is about 150 miles inland from Mogadishu, and Baidoa has really become the epicenter of the food crisis. This is in part because it's the biggest city in an area that's gotten very little rainfall. It's also an island of government control surrounded by areas that are controlled by al-Shabaab militants. And mm. this has made it much harder to get help to people. Now, you've got hundreds of thousands of people on the outskirts of Baidoa, again, living in spontaneous camps similar to the one I described in, in Mogadishu. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one man, Mohammed Abdullah, he's a resident of one of the newest camps. He took us to see the burial site on the edge of his camp, on the edge of his settlement. And it's in this arid, deserty landscape, very gravelly soil, sort of prickly scrub brush out there. And there by the side of the road, he showed us these mounds of dirt. Who is it that's being buried out here? Who are the people that are being buried? It is because of uh, hunger, lack of food, as well as malnourished children, also sick children with the most complicated cases. Yeah, mostly malnourished children dying here. Malnourished children. Malnourished children are dying there. Yep. Malnourished children, as that's what he said. And um, some of the graves you can see are just these small little mounds there. Uh, And it's not just, you know, the camp residents who are telling us this. We also went to the public hospital in Baidoa. It's a government-run hospital. It also gets supplies from UNICEF and some other international aid agencies. But there's a whole section of the hospital which right now is focused on malnourished kids. Yeah, most of these bodies, sometimes they will be a food. That's Dr. Mohammed Ibrahim. He was the one showing us around. Yeah, even our patients may sometimes reach 100 patients or up to 150 patients. And we are struggling with them to save them. 100 to 150 patients at a time, he says. And uh, he's showing us the pediatric intensive care ward. Uh, some kids in the rows of beds were suffering from a form of malnutrition that causes them to bloat and swell up. It, it looks incredibly discomforting and painful. Other children were so thin that they looked just like skeletons covered with skin. I remember there was this six-week-old baby by the door, and she only weighed two kilograms, which is like four and a half pounds, which is less than half of what she should weigh. Some of these kids, Dr. Ibrahim was telling us, they're so weak they can't even swallow. And he says the most dangerous situation is when you have a child that's already malnourished, underweight, and then the kid gets measles or diarrhea or the common cold or just anything, and they can deteriorate incredibly quickly. And he says that the staff's main goal is to just try to stabilize these kids. How do you do that? I mean, what do you do for children who are that close to death in that situation? So he says if they get them in early enough, they they can save most of these kids. Uh, The problem is when kids come in late, you know, they can put kids on an IV, they can use a feeding tube, and they do do that. But the goal is to try to get these kids back to the point where they can eat on their own and their parents can take care of them. The hospital has supplemental food and milk that they can hand out to the parents, but there's a concern that if there are other kids in the family, oftentimes that food ends up getting divvied up amongst all the siblings. So the the stability for the long term is something they really worry about. 
Dr. Ibram says that some of the kids who are malnourished are, are breastfeeding, and he says that's really surprising because normally if the kids are breastfeeding, if an infant is breastfeeding, they're getting the nutrition they need. But the problem now is that the mothers themselves are malnourished. It may be possible that they are not breastfed well because if the mother is uh, struggling with the farming or uh, the daily food of the house, it is not easy to come back to the home and to and breastfeed. It's, not, it's a complicated, yeah. Is it often that the mother is not eating enough herself? Not, yeah, there is no enough food and struggling to, to for the house, for the home, for the family. Yeah, so the lack of food and it, it's permeating the entire household. It's not just yeah. the kids who are, are starving. And this problem isn't just about the drought. We should point that out. Uh, it's also because of politics and war. Baidoa and many of the other places in Somalia that are being hardest hit are these islands that are controlled by the government, but the countryside around them is controlled by al-Shabaab. Um, al-Shabaab, it's an Islamist group. It's an offshoot of al-Qaeda. They've been fighting against the government for years, but they're also actively opposed to the idea of international aid, and they attack UN convoys. So humanitarian agencies, they can't even drive from Mogadishu to Baidoa because the militants control the roads. They have to fly everything in. They, they were even flying in their, their armored cars that they, they were using to drive around there. Uh, mm. Local merchants were saying that they, on their own, business people can't ship down truckloads of grain from Mogadishu because only wholesalers who are operating with the permission of al-Shabaab can move food in and out of Baidoa. So this armed conflict is really complicating the food crisis and making it very hard for international aid groups or even the Somali government to, to try to tackle it. I mean, Somalia has been a troubled country for decades, yeah. right? It's often slapped with this label, failed state. The insecurity that you just outlined and all the interference from al-Shabaab, I mean, setting aside <laughs> whether or not you're you're starving to death. But if you happen to be food secure, how much of that political instability is upsetting your life anyway? It's affecting daily life everywhere, across the country, even in Mogadishu, which is supposedly controlled by the government. You know, people are telling us that they have to pay taxes to al-Shabaab. There are explosions and attacks that are occurring just about every day in Mogadishu. Uh, in October, a double car bomb killed at least 100 people and wounded 300 more. Uh, there was IED attacks while we were there. So you've got this natural disaster that's being amplified by climate change that then is being made worse by this brutal insurgency by the Islamic extremists. So. You know, even for us, getting there and reporting this story, it was incredibly difficult. Can you tell me about that? Like, what was what was specifically hard? How did you get into Mogadishu? So, you know, I flew into Mogadishu on a regular commercial jet with Ethiopian Airlines. But once you get there, the security issue dominates everything. It dominates where you can go, dominates when you can go. Every decision is dependent on what your armed security detail is willing to sign off on. You go somewhere and then they say, you can't stay here more than 30 or 40 minutes because it's starting to attract attention. And so you have to quickly move to another spot. Uh, it's, it's just omnipresent, this insecurity problem. I mean, that's worth just underscoring. That's not a normal thing for reporters to have to have an armed security detail. It, it, I mean, it complicates your work there, right? A absolutely. And I mean, I have never 
at other times been been working in a situation like this. You know, it, it's kind of amazing. You fly in, you come into the airport, you end up sleeping at the airport. The airport is basically like a military base. There are blast walls all the way around this green zone that has been set up. There are these checkpoints, massive checkpoints with heavily armed guards, this razor wire perimeter. Then inside that green zone, the international aid agencies, the embassies, even the peacekeepers from the African Union, they all have their own compounds inside this fortified green zone. And we were staying in what was, you know, termed a hotel, but it was basically shipping containers. And they were, you know, they were clean, there were beds in them, but these were shipping containers and they had sandbags on the top of them to absorb potentially any incoming mortar fire. It's like being in a war zone constantly. At times we were working with UNICEF and at times we had hired our own security teams. But, you know, when you try to leave the green zone, you would have to have an armored car that you were in and then one or two pickup trucks full of what they call technicals, uh, which are armed escorts with AK-47s who hang out of the back of these pickup trucks. Uh, Some of the security people refer to them as shooters. And the idea is that if there's a bombing or you come under attack or something else goes wrong, there's no police, there's no organization that's going to come rescue you. So you have to hire your own private security pod to move around the city with you. And this is my first time having been to to Mogadishu. It was completely unusual and really a bit surreal. But, But Jason, they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be like a safe zone, right? Like a green zone kind of place? Right. And that is by the airport, and that is where we were sleeping. But even inside the green zone, you were hearing gunfire all the time. I mean, I spent much of the year working in Ukraine, and I I heard more gunfire in a week in Mogadishu than I'd heard potentially, uh, you know, for months in in Mm -hmm. Ukraine. And, you know, one day... Luke, who was our photographer, Hussein, the translator, and I were having a cup of coffee. We're sitting there, and I'm flinching every time there's gunfire. And Hussein just—he's just brushing it off. He, he doesn't even seem to notice. Yeah, just life. People are sitting down. No one is no, 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 nervous at all. So this is just normal in yeah, Mogadishu. Yeah, no, this is normal in Mogadishu. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Like those. That's normal. Yeah, that's normal. Because sometimes you can hear about. As I'm asking about, is this normal to have gunfire? There's more gunfire going off. Uh, and he just says, you know, uh, one or two shots, that's, those are warning mm-hmm. shots. Uh, but the point of all this is that it's not just me as someone who's flown in here who, who feels this. This is affecting the aid agencies. It's affecting the government. It's affecting what could be the response to this impending famine, this food crisis that they're currently in the midst of. So... How do Somalis themselves see the situation? I mean, who who do they blame for the food crisis? Do they acknowledge climate change yeah. in any of this? Are they pointing the finger at al-Shabaab or their own government or aid agencies, international aid agencies? What are they saying? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, Somalis do talk about climate change. You you hear that, that term, climate change, more from people in Mogadishu, mm-hmm. middle class people than you do amongst these rural farmers who have fled to the camps, uh, like places like Baidoa. But even many of those those farmers, they talk about how the weather is changing, how the droughts are longer, how they're more frequent. And in terms of blame, most of those 
people that I met in the camps, they just blamed this on being a historic drought, as being something that they didn't have control over. And one woman told me, only God can bring rain. Only God can bring rain. So is there a chance that rains could come back? I mean, is there a chance that people could go back to their farms and this crisis that the UN is warning about could actually be averted? You know, it is possible, but it's highly unlikely, at least in the short term. And that's because the region right now is entering into what is traditionally a dry season. And that dry season lasts normally from January into March, potentially April. So the expectation there now is that things are going to get worse. They're going to get drier before they get better. And even if the next round of rains do come in April, it's going to take time for farmers to get reestablished, you know, rebuild their herds. And then some of the people who fled to Baidoa, they were telling us that as long as al-Shabaab continues to control their villages, now that they've left, they're not sure whether they can safely go back there. Jason, thank you so much for bringing us this reporting. I mean, it's it's hard to absorb the stories of, of these people and these children, but it's it's really important, and we appreciate you bringing us these stories. Oh, I mean, you're absolutely welcome. I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. This episode was produced by Raina Cohen. It was edited by Miranda Kennedy and mastered by Gilly Moon. Leanna Simstrom is our supervising producer. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Next Sunday, we're starting a series from my colleague Ari Shapiro. Ari and I talked at several points during his journey across three countries where he was looking at the connections between climate change, migration, and political extremism. I'm Rachel Martin. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news you need to start your week. Until then, have a great rest of your Sunday. Mm-hmm.